Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. In late October of 2005, five fishermen from the, ta- from the town of San Blas, Mexico, set out on a routine shark fishing trip in their 25-foot, two-engine boat. As was typical in their fishing community, the men boarded their boat and set out in the middle of the night. They brought with them their fishing gear and three days' worth of food. But they also set out without a radio or a cell phone. The fishermen had a very rudimentary setup, and their vessel didn't actually comply with navigation rules, partly because they were seasoned fishermen, they had done this before, but also because the authorities didn't demand it. And so the trip was originally intended to be two to three days, but early into the trip, one of the engines broke down, and the other ran out of fuel. Still close enough to the shore, the men weren't afraid. They knew the currents would keep them within a few hundred feet of the shore, They also knew if they truly needed help, there were other boats in the area and they can flag them down. So they kept on fishing without any hesitation. On the third night of their expedition, they decided to bring in their lines and find a way home when the sun rose. They cleaned up for the night, they fell asleep, and in the middle of the night, a storm rolled through the Pacific Ocean, and they were unknowingly pushed outside of the currents that were keeping them tethered to their home. When they woke up the next morning, a dense fog surrounded them. And so as the sun rose and the fog lifted, they realized that they could no longer see the coast and that they were lost at sea. Winds and currents continued to push their fishing boat westwards into the vastness of the Pacific. Occasionally, they would see a passing ship, and they'd begin to scream and yell and wave desperately, but none stopped. Days lost at sea turned into weeks. Weeks turned into months. They spent Christmas adrift at sea. The further they drifted from the coast, the more dangerous that it got. They began to experience daily storms that would toss their small boat around with ease. On multiple occasions, they almost sank as the waves crashed, tossing all their gear and all their supplies and everything they owned overboard. Every night when they went to sleep, they were waiting to be thrown overboard by the storms that would not relent. Over time, dehydration and hunger and insanity began to set in. In January, one of the men died. In February, another man died. Both were thrown overboard. For the next five months, they wasted away at sea. They relied on a fishing rod that they constructed out of broken engine parts. They collected rain in buckets. They would take turn on watch for other boats while the other two slept. Sometimes they went days without food. When they could find food, they ate it raw. They drank the blood of animals when they could not collect enough water. During the day, the fishermen would hide under blankets to protect themselves from the sun. After 286 days lost at sea, which at the time was the longest recorded record of anyone ever being lost at sea and surviving, they were found. A Taiwanese fishing trawler found the group naked, burned, and emaciated near the Marshall Islands. And for those of you who are trying to figure out the geography of that, it's 5,000 miles away from their starting point. The Marshall Islands are right off the coast of New Zealand. When the men realized that they were finally being rescued, they started sobbing, but no tears came out because they were too dehydrated because they had been lost for so long. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I feel like I'm lost at sea, where I feel like I'm lost. I feel like the waves are crashing against me and I'm just waiting to capsize and drown. There are times in my life when I look around and it feels like I'm waving and I'm screaming and people are passing by and nobody sees me. 
And there are times in my life where I just hope, I just hope someone notices me, hope that I can survive, and hope that I'll make it through the storm. And some of you, if you're being honest, you would say that's where you are right now. You feel like you're in the middle of a storm. You're trying your best to raise your kids to love Jesus. You want them to have a relationship with him. You want him to be a priority in their life. But every day they drift further and further away. So you find yourself desperately praying to God that he continues to chase after your children so that they can experience the grace and truth that he offers. Some of you, you're trying your best to get out of debt. You know that scripture teaches us that the debtor is slave to the lender, and you're desperately trying to free yourself from that burden, to take control of your finances so you can truly trust God. But every time you put a few extra dollars away, you know what happens, right? The car breaks down. The bill shows up. And you're slammed again by the storm that you're so desperately trying to get out of. Maybe you spent another Friday night alone and you found yourself scrolling through Instagram out of boredom. And all you saw were pictures of your friends who are married and they're having kids and you felt all alone. Because deep down inside, you desperately want to be married. You desperately want to start a family. And even though you're looking in all the right places, even though you're not taking any shortcuts, you're not looking on Tinder, you're trying to find a guy or girl who actually truly loves Jesus and will pursue Jesus with you, you're still single. And you feel alone, and you're wondering, does anybody see me? Whatever it is, sometimes in life we find ourselves in the middle of a storm. A storm of real pain, of real grief, of real brokenness. And we just want that storm to go away. I'm going to be really honest with you, though. And some of you don't want to hear this today, and I'm really sorry. (laughs) You can't make storms go away. Storms are a part of life. I'm sorry. I wish it was different. Like, I wish I could preach a sermon to you where I would say, there are no storms, everything will be perfect. To be honest, if if that was true and I could teach that, this church would be bigger than we ever imagined. But the reality is storms are just a part of life. But the good news with that is you're not alone, that God sees you and that he's with you. So today we're continuing our Hope Rising series because we can all use a little hope. We said this last week because we're either in a hard time right now or we're coming out of a hard time or eventually we're going to be in a hard time. And the one thing that can get us through these storms, because we know they're going to happen, the one thing that can get us through is the hope that Jesus offers. So last week we talked about how we can have hope. And the reason why we can have hope is because joy comes after grief. And we learned that that joy can't be taken away from us. And most importantly, we learned that that joy can only be made complete, can only be made full through Jesus. It won't be made complete when you hit a certain salary threshold. It won't be made complete when you find the one. It won't be made complete when you cross that item off your bucket list. It will only be made complete through faith in Jesus. And last week, we finished by reading John 16, verse 33. And that's actually what we're going to use to kick off this sermon today. And here's what John 16, 33 says. And Jesus said this. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus says, you will have trouble. He says, there will be storms. And I don't know about you, but that actually brings me peace because I find comfort in the fact that Jesus recognizes that the storm I'm going through, the storms I feel, are things that he knows exist. I find peace and I find comfort in the fact that Jesus recognizes that there are hard times in our life. But Jesus doesn't just see them. He, he sees our troubles, but he overcomes them. It doesn't matter what the world throws at you. Jesus can overcome, which is why our hope should be in him. Not our jobs, not our money, not our friends, but Jesus. 
And as we move forward into the story today, the question we all need to wrestle with is, what do you do when you're in the middle of a storm? What do you do when you're in the middle of a storm? Unfortunately, a lot of people tend to blame God. As storms rage on, they begin to lose hope. They start to ask, where is God? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why won't God do something? We, we blame God. I've worked in churches for nine years, and I've been able to meet and hear the stories of hundreds of people. And to be honest, it's one of my favorite parts of the job is that I get to hear your story. I get to hear how God is moving, how God changes and impacts lives. But over the last nine years, I've started to notice that there are patterns in the stories of the people that I meet. If the story is about how someone, how, some, how someone weathered the storm and actually got through it, the story is always about faith and trust and community. But if the story is about someone who was hit by a storm and walked away from God and the church, the story tends to go like this. My marriage started to fall apart. My brother was diagnosed. My relationships were unfulfilling and left me feeling empty. We struggled to get pregnant, and God didn't do anything. And people say, because if he loved me, I wouldn't be going through this storm. Because if he was real, why would he hurt me, and why would I feel hurt in this way? Because if he cared, I wouldn't have any problems. But the problem with this thinking is that God never promised that there wouldn't be pain. Pain wasn't God's intention. Pain wasn't something that God introduced to the world. That came when sin happened. But pain wasn't part of God's plan. He never promised that there wouldn't be brokenness. He never promised that there wouldn't be problems. And when we get stuck in a storm and Jesus and the church don't magically fix things, we blame God. We think that God doesn't love us. And we think that God doesn't care. But one thing that we learn over and over and over again in the Bible is that God is always there. That he loves us, that he cares. That doesn't mean things will be easy. To be honest, it doesn't mean the storms will cease. It means that we're not alone. It means that we can have hope and peace in these storms. Because God never promised there wouldn't be trouble. He promised that he would overcome. And he did that when he sent his son to die and resurrect from the dead. And this is why we celebrate Easter. Because the resurrection proved that Jesus could overcome death and pain and brokenness that we experience in this world. The resurrection proved that we can have eternity with him and eternity without pain and brokenness where everything will be made new. So here it is. If you check out for the rest of the sermon, okay? So some of you, you want to check out, that's fine. I want you to hear this one thing. Hold on to this, right? Never let the presence of a storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. I'm going to say that again. Never let the presence of a storm cause you to doubt the presence of God. And the reason why we can say that and the reason why we know that's true is because God is with us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick up the story from last week. Here's a little bit of background. So Jesus is with his disciples, and he's foreshadowing his own death. He's foreshadowing his own death on a cross and his own resurrection, and he's talking to his disciples about what's to come. He says to them, I'm here now, but in a little while I'll be gone. And he says, but then I'll come back and I'll be gone again. And so the disciples are thoroughly confused because they don't quite get it. But he's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. And the reason why Jesus is doing this is he's actually trying to prepare his disciples, his followers, for the storm that's coming. 
Jesus knows that they're going to be devastated by his execution. He knows it. Jesus knows that they're going to be persecuted and that their lives will be threatened because they follow him. Jesus knows that the storm is coming. And so for the first time in the lives of the followers of Jesus, for three years they'd follow him. They gave up their career. They walked away from their family. They walked away from their previous religion. They walked away from everything they knew to follow him. But for the first time in their lives, they will eventually be without their leader. And so Jesus, knowing that this storm is coming, does everything he can to instill hope in his disciples. He does everything he can to let them know that you will be okay. And so Jesus says that to his disciples, and this is where the story continues. And this is what he does. He actually, after he kind of preaches this little thing to them and tells them, like, there's going to be a storm coming. I hope you get it. And they're like, we still don't understand. You know, and he's like, it's going to happen, and eventually it'll make sense. So hold on to these truths. Hold on to these things. What he does is he actually prays for the disciples. In John 17, we see this incredibly beautiful moment, this intimate moment between Jesus and his Father, between Jesus and God, while his disciples are there. And this is what Jesus prays, starting in John 17, verse 9. He says this, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I love this moment. Like, this is the beginning of his prayer. And Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples, for his friends. He's praying for his friends. And this is a real and vulnerable moment for Jesus because he's acknowledging that God's disciples, those people that are following Jesus, they're a gift from God. That these people in his life, these friends in his life, they've laid down everything they have for Jesus, and that's a gift to him. And Jesus actually recognizes in this moment that it's through these men, these regular, normal, sinful, broken, messed up men, that glory has come to God. And so right off the bat, this speaks to the care and love that Jesus has for those people who follow him. And that's kind of what the rest of the prayer comes from. This is what what it continues in, in, in John 17, verse 11. Jesus says this, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Again, Jesus is foreshadowing his own death. The, the, the disciples are there, right? They're hearing this prayer, and he's trying to put that back in there again, saying, I'm going to keep reminding you, like, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to keep reminding you that I'm going to go see our Father in heaven. And so again, he's talking about his own death. He's saying, we're going to be separated from each other. The disciples will stay here. And the reason why the disciples are staying on earth is because they have a mission. And their job and their calling is that once Jesus is gone, is to spread the good news about Jesus, right? That's why we have the church today is because of this. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to be gone, but they're still going to be here. And then he continues. He says this, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me, so that they may be be one as we are one. I'm going to soapbox for a second uh, because I think we need to make sure that we understand what Jesus is talking about when he says protection. We need to fully understand what he is saying. Too often, Christians think and go around telling other people that God will protect us from bad things right? Like, I'm sure you've heard it before. You've seen it on a meme on Facebook, right? Like, that's, which is like the worst form of Christianity on the planet. But ultimately, we've been told at some point in our life, if bad things are happening, you don't have Jesus, right? Some of you have heard that you've had friends or family, you know, your grandma, she's telling you all the time, that thing's happening because you don't have Jesus. And you're sitting here going, I'm trying, right? So ultimately, this thing in this culture has happened where Christians have gone around saying, when bad things happen, that's because you don't love Jesus. But that's just not true, God doesn't put a protective bubble around you when you choose to follow him. He doesn't. And I know this because of my own life, right? Like I've been trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do my best. Bad things still happen, 
right? Bad things happen at terrible times. Bad things happen all the time. It's just a part of life. We also know this because of the disciples. You know, we get this opportunity to see this story at the 30,000 foot view, right? Like we get the whole Bible, we get to read it, we get to know what eventually happens. The disciples in this moment are confused and unsure of what's to come. But one thing that we do know is that after Jesus dies and resurrects and ascends into heaven, the disciples are beaten and tortured and killed. And so if Jesus is praying for this special bubble to be around his disciples, he failed. He's, he didn't, it didn't work. These disciples eventually will go through persecution, and all of them, except for a few, will eventually be killed for their faith. And so this prayer of Jesus was not for God to send something like rescue planes to evacuate the disciples from their hostile setting of the world. It wasn't to wrap them in some plastic danger-free safety casing where they would never encounter evil. What Jesus is praying for is protection of their faith. He's praying that they keep their hope, that they keep their strength, that they keep their joy. Jesus is asking God to protect their faith because the storm is coming and it's going to be hard. Jesus is praying to God because he recognizes at some point they're going to be alone. That Jesus isn't going to be standing right in front of them so that in the storm they can go, okay, he's still here, I'm okay. That at some point they're going to have to figure this out for themselves. And, And Jesus is praying to God, protect them through these moments. And Jesus continues the prayer in John 17, verse 12. This is what he says. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one, who do, one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And Jesus is asking God to protect them and keep them safe in the same way that Jesus had done. And again, we get the 30,000 foot view. So we know that it wasn't like everything was easy for them. It wasn't like they didn't go through hard times. It wasn't like when they were with Jesus, everything was perfect. The reality was they went through ups and downs. They went through storms. They went through seasons. But they knew the entire time that Jesus was right there. And so when Jesus prays, he's asking that they feel the presence of God, that they don't lose, that God is with them. And and he finishes by saying that only one was lost. And this is a reference to Judas, who eventually will betray Jesus. And this is what kind of triggers the rest of Jesus' persecution, his torture, his crucifixion on a cross. But Jesus even knows when he's praying this to, to God, he even knows that this is what's supposed to happen. That prophecy in the Old Testament had said, like, someone will eventually betray him. And so he knew. So even though Jesus would eventually turn his back, it was so that scripture would be fulfilled. The prayer continues, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus is referencing what we talked about last week in John 16. We learned last week that complete or full joy only comes through Jesus. And that joy being within, he's actually alluding to this gift that's going to come after he ascends into heaven. He's actually alluding to the Holy Spirit, the gift that lives inside of those who follow and believe. He's talking about this idea that eventually Jesus isn't going to be here, but they need that joy, which is God in us. That's the Holy Spirit. This is something that that the disciples didn't even really fully understand. But again, like we get to see the big picture and we get to see when Jesus ascends, that's a gift that's given to them. And this is something that we can have. This isn't just something for the disciples. And essentially in this story, Jesus is praying for his followers, but it's something that connects with us today as well. Because this full joy and this complete joy and this gift of God in us is something that we can receive through faith faith in Jesus. 
it's something that we can receive by responding to that faith with repentance and baptism. To be immersed in water, the death of our old selves and the rising up of our new selves. In fact, we talked about this last week on Easter. We're celebrating the baptisms of two people. In fact, during the week, somebody else said, I'm ready to make that decision. So on Easter, we get to celebrate that. We get to celebrate these three people saying, I'm going to make my joy complete. I'm going to have God in me. And I know for some of you, you're looking for that hope and you're looking for that peace. And again, it doesn't fix everything, right? Like we will never tell you that following Jesus means everything is rainbow, rainbows and butterflies. But what we do know and what Jesus says is that our joy can be made real and full and complete. And for some of you, you're wrestling with that. And I would encourage you, check the box on your connection card about baptism. Let's have a conversation. Might not have all the answers. To be honest, I might not give you the answers that you want. But what I do know is what Jesus says, and, and that's what we try to follow. The prayer continues. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I think this is really fascinating because Jesus doesn't ask God to take them away from the storm. It's not what he asks. He knows it's coming. He's foreshadowing. He's trying to tell them, hey, this is coming. And Jesus in that moment could have said, hey, hey God, it would be, it'd be a lot easier if I didn't die. It'd be a lot easier if I just lived forever with it. Let's just, can all 12 of us just live forever in perfect harmony? And he could have done that. He could have asked for that. But that's not what he asks for. He asks for God to protect them, to protect their closeness to God, to protect them from the evil one, to protect them from Satan. I'm going to go on another soapbox. Sorry. Have you ever noticed that sometimes, I'm gonna, it's like a, not a bashing Christian day, but there are things that Christians do that drive me nuts, and this is one of them. Have you ever noticed that sometimes in Christian circles, so many people try to blame the devil for everything? right? The devil did this. It's the devil's fault. The devil put me in this position. It's, it's, it's the devil doing it. Sometimes it's not the devil. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's your own dumb fault, right? It just is. Sometimes you're in the middle of a storm because you spent too much money. Sometimes you're in the middle of a storm because your emotions got the best of you and you said something you shouldn't have. Sometimes you're in the middle of a storm because you procrastinated. It's not always the devil's fault. Sometimes you're in a storm because somebody else told you not to date him. Your mom told you not to date them. Your dad told you not to date them. Your pastor told you not to date them. Your best friend told you not to date them. BuzzFeed told you not to date him, but you argued back. He's got potential. Well, he's got potential to ruin your life, but you dated him anyways. So the reality is sometimes you're in the middle of the storm, and that's your own fault. It just is, and we know it. Some of you are in the middle of the storm, though, and it's not your fault. Sometimes as a kid, your parents end up divorcing, and you're in the middle of a storm that you didn't cause. Sometimes your company makes a bunch of bad decisions and end up having to downsize. And you're a casualty of it. It's not a storm that you caused. Some of you trusted somebody. They gave you their word and you believed them. You thought they would do what they said they would do, but they didn't deliver. And one day, you're in the middle of a storm and it isn't your fault. But whatever the case may be, whatever the case may be, whether you caused it or somebody else caused it or the devil's going after you, whatever it is, it's so easy in those moments to give up hope. It just is. It's so much easier. But we have to remember to never let the presence of a storm cause us to doubt the presence of God. Whether it's on you or someone else or on Satan, it doesn't matter because God is still with you. This is how Jesus finishes his prayer for the disciples. He says this, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. To sanctify is, is a word that means to make holy. And to make holy means to be set apart. That God has set them apart. He's, he's chosen them. He's picked them. It, it, essentially, it means to be dedicated to God. And it can hardly be an accident that the prayer that he's praying is for holiness of the disciples. It's that they're, they're sanctified. Is that they're still one with God. And that's think, it's, it's, it's centered on the truth, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the truth that they don't even fully understand yet until he dies and resurrects. But the reality is Jesus understood the inauthenticity of religion, and he prayed that such a lack of integrity might not be present in his disciples when he was gone. And so Jesus prays this prayer. He talks to God. He talks while his disciples are there. They get to intimately view this conversation. And the whole time he's just reminding them that a storm is coming. And Jesus knows. He's fully aware. He knows that he has to die. And he knows he has to do it so he can resurrect from the dead. So that he can prove that he is the son of God. So that he can prove that he can forgive sins. So that he can prove that salvation is found through him. And so Jesus prays that his disciples, his friends, stay close to God in the same way that they stayed close to Jesus. And that they can constantly be reminded that God is with them, that they're not alone. And that they can remain steady through the storm because God is with them. Even though they can't see him, they know that God is with him. And so what do you do when you're in the middle of a storm? What do you do in the middle of storm divorce? What do you do in the middle of storm depression? What do you do in the middle of a financial storm? What do you do in the middle of a relational storm? Because the reality is we know this, there will be storms in our life. But what do you do when you're in the middle of a storm? What we read and what we learn and what a lot of us experience is that we can have hope because God is with us. And we can have hope because he never left us. And we can have hope because we can trust him. Because we will never let the presence of a storm cause us to doubt the presence of God. When the men were rescued after being lost at sea for 286 days, word quickly spread that they had been found. So what ended up happening is they ended up on this fishing trawler, but they actually had a job to do, so they were stuck on this boat for multiple weeks before they had the opportunity to go home. But as they traveled back to Mexico, news outlets from across the world began to try to interview these men and try to figure out their story. How did you survive? How did you get here? What was it like? And so they wanted to know, how did you make it through the dehydration? How did you make it through the hunger? How did you make it through the storms? And during one of the first interview, interviews with BBC, the reporter asked, how did you make it through the days and nights without giving up? And one of the men said this. He said, we never lost hope. We never lost hope because there's a God. He said, our feet are swollen and our arms are swollen, but it could have been worse. And even though the sea wanted to bury us, we weren't going to give up. And then the man actually took an old Bible from his bag. It was the only possession that didn't get swallowed by the storms. 
and only had a few worn pages left. And at the end of his journey, because the entire time, that's what they did. They just kept reading and kept reading and kept reading until the pages fell out. And they did this to remind themselves that every day that God was with them, that they weren't alone, that the storm was temporary, and that they could have faith because God overcame the world. And so for them, it didn't matter what the world was going to throw at them. It didn't matter about the storms. It didn't matter about the dehydration. It didn't matter about the, hungry, or the hunger. It didn't matter about the insanity. They had hope that even if they weren't going to make it out alive, this wasn't one of those things where they just thought in their head that, okay, God's going to take this boat and move it where it needs to go. Therefore, I'm going to be safe. The reality was they knew that they could die. But even in that, they had hope because they knew that Jesus had overcome the world and that their faith and their hope and their peace came from him. And that they knew that even if they died in this world, they had eternity with him. So real hope isn't found in a trouble-free life. You'll never have a trouble-free life. And following Jesus doesn't mean bad days won't happen. That's bad theology if you think that's true, and I'm sorry. But real hope is not found in the absence of trouble. Real hope is found in the presence of Jesus. On the good days and the bad, he is with me. He is right beside me. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. So no matter what storm you're in, no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what storm you're about to go into or the storm you're getting out of, God is with you. He's right beside you. He'll never leave you, and he'll never forsake you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, that in the storms of our life and in the things that we experience and the storms that are coming, that we're not alone. God, that you're with us. God, that it, that's not something that, that we say, but we read and we learn is true. And, and God, as you prayed that prayer and you spoke to, <laughs> as you guys communicated about this, and as Jesus cried out to you, it was something that came out of love, but something that you heard. So God, I just pray for everybody here that the storms that they're going through, that they realize that it's only a season, but they can get through it because you're with them. They can have hope because you're with them. God, thank you for the ways that you love us and care for us, and thank you for the ways that you show up in those storms. Amen.